Good morning. We are resuming our study. First uh, John, we're in part nine of Fellowship Divine, God's Blueprint for Otherworldly Joy. And today's title is The Fellowship's Orthopraxis of Love. So that's a fancy term that I learned when I was in seminary. Orthopraxis means right praxis, practice. Goodness, can't even say it. So orthodoxy refers to right theology. And so we've talked about that. We had a lesson on the orthodoxy of love and how theology, sound theology is rooted in the love that existed in the Trinity, the love that was expressed through Christ in the incarnation. So that's the orthodoxy. That's the doctrinal foundation of our faith. Today, we're going to look at the orthopraxis. So how do we take this doctrine of love that we've looked at? How do we apply it to our lives? And that's what the subject is for today. So in your notes, we're going to start in verse 16. And I'll go ahead and give you the point. Love gives evidence that goes beyond reason. Love gives evidence that goes beyond reason. So in verse 16, 1 John chapter 4, John says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. So this eternal relationship that existed with the Trinity is something that we are included in. Christ came down. He paid for our sins. He paid that price. And through faith, we are born again and included in this eternal relationship of love. But verse 16, it starts with, we have known and believed the love that God had to us. When I read those words for the first time as I was preparing for this, John just sounds so confident. It's a confidence that I think everybody who he's writing to could resonate with and say, we have this confidence too. We have known and believed. We have known and they continue to know. They continue to believe. And this is something that we as Christians, we can agree with. We've known the love of God. There's no way someone can convince me otherwise. If someone tried to tell me that I don't really love my wife, I'd say, no, I, I love my wife. I know the love that I have for my wife and I know that my wife loves me. And so that kind of confidence goes beyond just the observable evidence of things. Of course, we can see evidence for God in a lot of different ways. Uh, we've talked about that evidence in this study somewhat, but evidence only takes us so far. We all have to go beyond the evidence at some point and say, okay, God's led us to this point. Belief is reasonable. Faith is reasonable. We've observed all of these signs, you know, what have you, the, the prophetic signs that are being fulfilled in our time. You know, we've seen the signposts of history pointing to Jesus. We've seen the signposts of science pointing to the God of the Bible. But beyond that sight, we have to make what is termed by some as a leap of faith. Now, it's a reasonable leap of faith. It's a lot more reasonable than denying the existence of God or denying the truthfulness of scripture, but it is faith. And when we take that leap, we come into an understanding, just like it says in Hebrews eleven three. by faith, we understand. And so I do believe that there's something to what is called fideism. So this is a term that when I was in seminary, it was disparaged. Fideism was just bankrupt of any value. In apologetics, they would say that you should avoid it. Yeah, uh, fideism is spelt F-I-D-E-I-S-M, fideism, and it comes from the root to believe, okay? Fideism. In fact, it's related to the Reformation expression, sola fide. I don't know if y'all have ever heard that. It means 
only by faith or solely by faith we receive salvation, we're justified. So fideism is basically faithism. And faithism says that the only way you can really know God, you can really know him, is if you believe and you take that step of faith that goes beyond the evidence that you can see and assess with your reason, you see with your eyes, you have to eventually come to a place where you make a commitment to walk by faith and not by sight. Because there are a lot of things that we can't understand. For example, I would say that in Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 3, 4, every house has a builder, right? That's reasonable. That's logical. So whenever I'm talking with someone who doesn't believe in God, I point that out. Well, do you think this house built itself? And they'll say, well, you know, that makes sense. That's reasonable. Most of the students that I've shared that with, they think, oh, that's a pretty good analogy. You know, a a painting needs a painter. Creation needs a creator. There, There are lots of different ways you could express that. But isn't it true that when we talk about God creating this building of the universe, it started with him creating the materials out of nothing first. That's creation ex nihilo or ex nihilo. And and that means that something happened when God created the universe that has never been reproduced in human experience. Have y'all ever seen something come from nothing? Uh, Yeah, (laughs) maybe in a movie, but have we ever seen in real time something come from nothing? So that is beyond our experience, right? So it is reasonable to believe that this building had a builder. We have the reason, but we have to have faith that goes beyond experience and beyond sight to believe that God made the worlds by his word with no prior materials that can be seen. Are you following? So fideism has a really good point. Reason will lead us to a place to believe, but reason cannot in any way coerce belief. And so I'm going to give you a few quotes by fideists here that I think express the same confidence that's exuded by John when he says these words in verse 16, and we have known and believed the love that God had to us. So Soren Kierkegaard, famous famous, famous Danish philosopher, also a Christian, and he was an advocate for fideism. And in his day, he was its chief proponent. Uh, And today, whenever you talk about fideism, you have to study Kierkegaard's writings. Uh, So this is some of the stuff that he said, and I agree with these quotes. I have not read all of his writings, so I I can't say that I agree with him on everything, right? I I generally don't give blanket statements of acceptance to any writer other than God and his word, but I like what he says here. He says, there is an unholy inversion, flipping things around. There's an unholy inversion in all this business of having to prove everything first. I wonder if it would ever occur to anyone really in love to prove the blessedness of love with three basic reasons. But the fact is that men no longer believe, alas, and so they want to help themselves with the artificial legs of a little scientific scholarliness. So what he's basically saying there is, nowadays, everybody's all about proving things. He said, where did, where did we leave behind this idea that love is something to be experienced and it's powerful and it's something that goes beyond the reasons that you can list like reason A, reason B, reason C. He says, that just seems so unholy, unworthy of the relationship that we have with Christ. And he's saying that the reality of Christ's love in our life is more powerful than any logical syllogism. You know, if, if A and B, then that will lead inevitably to C. That kind of deductive reasoning, he just was disillusioned by. He thought that that was really a facade for a lack of faith. Now, I don't agree with him when it comes to everything that he's saying there, but I do agree that there is something to the blessedness of love that we don't need to explain it. I mean, do I need to explain 
the reality of love that I have in my relationships. I'm not going to say, well, I, I am convinced based on reason that my love for this person or their love for me exists for the following three reasons. I mean, if, if you love somebody, you know it. If they love you, you know it. And that's something that we can say often. Like, how do you know? We just know. And it's something that we have experienced. And so it's become real to us. So he's saying that knowing God goes beyond reason. And it's a stronger evidence to have that understanding of God through personal interaction with him than this rationalization of God in the Bible. Those things are wonderful. I think that they should lead persons to a a place to believe, but they don't replace that belief if it makes any sense. You can't argue someone to heaven. And and that's one of the expressions that my seminary professor, he, he critiqued that expression. He didn't like it. But how can you disagree with that? Can you argue someone to heaven? Is it really a rational issue where if you just overcome enough rational obstacles, they will believe? So if you're smart enough and logical enough and you poke enough holes in their argument, they will bend the knee and surrender their arms. No, it doesn't work like that. There is a spiritual element. Now, I'm not saying there is no rational element, okay? Kierkegaard may have said that perhaps, but that's not what I'm saying. But I agree with his expression that love is something that we can know through experience and we don't necessarily have to have the logical reasons. And and many of you, okay, could say that you believed in God and were sure of God when you had faith for the first time. And later on, you studied apologetics. Later on, you found lots of confirmation for your faith. Uh, I found confirmation in science and history and prophecy, but I knew God long before I knew those rational reasons. Okay. And that knowledge is what matters the most. Uh, Another quote from Kierkegaard, this is a little longer, but it's good. He says, my development or any man's development proceeds in this way. Perhaps he does begin with a few reasons. So this is talking about apologetics, but this is the power stage. Then he chooses under the weight of responsibility before God, God, a conviction comes into existence in him through God. Now he is in the positive position. Now he cannot defend or prove his conviction with reasons. It is a self-contradiction since reasons are lower. No, the matter becomes more fully personal or a matter of personality. His conviction can only be defended ethically, personally, that is, by the sacrifices which he is able to make for it, the fearlessness with which he holds on to it. He's basically saying that all of these other reasons that we give to people to believe, they will pale into comparison with the reason that comes from ethical action. So the power of our lives, and rather the power of God at work in our lives, is more convincing that anything else we can share with somebody. And when God is convicting someone's heart, sure, God will use reasons as signposts to point them to a place where they have this encounter with God. And when I say encounter, I'm not talking about lots of emotion or or anything charismatic. I'm saying there is a spiritual encounter with God where he convicts someone. God promises that he will draw all men to himself. And in that moment, When you are assessing the truth of God through reasons, your rationality, your understanding, you're leaning on your understanding, right? And the Bible says not to lean on your understanding, but to acknowledge him in all ways. So there's this power struggle he's saying where it's all about me and my, I'm criticizing the Bible in a way. I'm putting my reason above the Bible and above God. But then I come to a place where God convicts me and that's where the power ends. That's where God's in charge. And all these reasons that I could muster, that I could come up with or wrap my mind around, they 
they lose their purpose because now I, I see and experience God as he was always meant to be experienced. And that is personally, not intellectually only the intellectual side of things leads me to the personal side of things. And that takes prominence. So that means guys, I will never show somebody a list where these things right here, these proofs, these, these things are evidence for God. And this piece of paper with all these items is why I believe. So if these items, okay, in some way become doubted by me, or if these proofs were shown to be not proofs at all, then my faith would collapse. I will honestly say that I am biased. I am biased. I know that God is true, that he is real and the Bible is his word. And if somebody could take my argument and shred it to pieces because they were really smart and they were able to find all these weaknesses, I would still believe because I've experienced God in a way that goes beyond reason. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that that has happened or will happen or even could happen because I think that God's word is so reasonable that reason rightly understood will always lead to him. And I become more convinced of that as I've studied the word of God. But I'm at a place where if I'm honest with anybody, my reasons for believing in God go well beyond my brain's understanding of the issues. And and this is something that Pascal says. Um, and I think this gets down to the issue. He says, and this is a paraphrase because I don't have the exact quote here. He said, uh, the heart has reasons that reason doesn't know. And that's a paraphrase. I may have got that a little wrong there, but again, that basically says the heart has reasons that reason doesn't know. That means that our love for God, his love for us can be experienced on a level that goes beyond our own mental limitations to assess evidence. Now he said another quote here that I have word for word. The reason it is so difficult to believe is that it is so difficult to obey. And so he's basically saying the main reason why people don't believe is because they would have to obey God by first acknowledging that he's right. And it is so hard to acknowledge that God is right because we have been our whole lives thinking that we're, yeah, we've done bad things. Okay. We all have things we regret, right? But we're not that bad. We're not all bad. There's some good in all of us. And when the Bible says there's none good, no, not one, your righteousness is as filthy rags in the eyes of God. That is the hardest pill to swallow. And so what Pascal is saying is the reason it's so hard to believe is because it's difficult to obey God when he says, repent, change your mind, stop thinking this way. You're convinced that you're okay. I'm saying you're not. And then you need me. And that requires humility. It is not easy for people to have. And if we didn't have the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we wouldn't have it at all. Now, I don't believe that God overpowers anybody and makes them believe, but I do believe he has to enable people to believe. I think scripture makes that clear. No one could come to God, to the son in belief, unless they were drawn by the father first. John 6, 44. That doesn't mean that he irresistibly draws anybody. I do believe that this drawing is resistible. However, we have to be drawn in order to believe. And I think that God does that often. I doubt that God just does it once for one person and leaves them. I think that he pursues people out of his love for them. But there is a, a, a moment where, as Kierkegaard would say, there's a power stage where we have to lay aside our understanding and rely upon the understanding presented in Christ, in his word. And there's power in that. So I would call biblical apologetics uh, something that starts with reason, 
but eventually says to somebody, this stuff right here makes what I'm saying reasonable. But if you want to know that I'm telling the truth, you've got to get in the game yourself. God wants you to accept him. He wants you to know him. But if you don't ever make that choice to take that step of faith in your life, then you're never going to know him. You're just going to know about him, which isn't the same. So the first point for verse 16 is love gives evidence that goes beyond reason. Now, verse 17. So we've been talking about conversion so far, knowing God, knowing that, you know, he's changed our life. He saved us. But verse 17 goes beyond that. It says, herein is our love made perfect that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. So the day of judgment is referring to the Bema seat. This is referring to the judgment seat of Christ, which we will all stand before when the rapture happens. So this is a family event, only families included. Now, there are servants in God's house that are present. They're angels, and no doubt they will be there as described in Revelation 4 and 5. But this is a family event. It's God and his children. And he is assessing how his children represented him in the world. Often in scripture, we had this idea of fathers sending their sons. In the parables of Jesus, the father sends his son. And we are adopted into the family of God through Christ. We become sons by extension through the Holy Spirit. And we are also ambassadors in the world. Well, when we're taken out of the world and we stand before God, he's going to assess whether or not we were a faithful ambassador. Christ was perfectly in the world, a wonderful ambassador of love and truth and righteousness. Have we done what we were called to do? in imitating that. Now, of course, no one does it perfectly and God doesn't expect perfection because the only perfection is in Christ and he knows that we can't live up to that. However, he expects faithfulness. He expects confession when we sin. He expects us to make hard choices because the world is full of temptation and it's a sacrifice to give up the things that the world is pulling us to, to give into, to say no to that and to say yes to God. And those who make that a pattern in their life will be rewarded for their faithfulness. And, and exactly how God's going to assess that, like in terms of math or percentages, how much percent was someone faithful? I don't even know how God's going to assess that. I think that God's way of doing things is going to always be vindicated. No one's going to complain. Everyone's going to agree that his way is righteous. All we can say is the general principle is that the love that began in us when we got saved is meant to go beyond just receiving a gift. And number two on your notes, love does not stop at receiving a gift. That's how it begins. I mean, we are led by reasons up to this point. We have to step off the cliff and God says, if you want to know me, you got to have faith. And we say, okay, we believe he enables us to, we make that choice. The battle of wills is over as far as that's concerned. But do we stop there? He's like, no, you're my child now. And you have the will of a child that sometimes, often, uh, rebels against my authority. And I want to shape you and make you more like me. And if we do that, our love is perfected. I mean, I think every Christian loves God, but do I love God as much as he deserves? No, because loving God is more than just an emotion, right? It's more than just a sentimental attachment because I have a relationship with him. It's fellowship. It's keeping his commands. And do I keep his commands perfectly? No. So do I, do I love him perfectly? No. Love has to be perfected. It has to be completed. It has to grow and develop. And that's what he's talking about in verse 17. But he says, if we are growing and developing this relationship that we have with him in love, and of course the context here is not just loving God, it's loving the brethren. God said, 
if you're going to love me, you got to love your brothers and sisters. And as we're doing that, and this is what we do in this congregation, you know, we love each other. We enjoy being around each other. Except maybe except Steve, you know, we love him too though, but we're around each other and we're growing in love. We're, we're encouraging each other, edifying each other. As we do that, that builds confidence. It builds confidence that, look, we're doing what Jesus did. He sat with his disciples. He fellowship with them. He loved them. And of course, we try to do our best to also reach out to the lost with the love of Christ. And as we are loving the brethren and loving those who are outside, who are without, as scripture says, we are becoming confident that when we stand before God one day, he's going to look upon us and say, I'm pleased with you. Why are we going to have that confidence before God? Because we are in the world as he is. And as he was, as God came into the world and he took that perfect nature and brought it down to this world and didn't cease to be perfect, didn't cease to be God, but continue to be perfectly loving. If we are imitating him in this life, then we can say, you know, before the Lord, the Lord's going to look upon my life and he's going to say, I'm pleased because I'm loving him by loving the brethren and loving those who are without. I'm not perfect in that love. I'm growing. Okay. But as our love reaches those further stages in development, our confidence will grow. Do y'all have perfect confidence about standing before Jesus? No, I don't. This is not a salvation issue, by the way. This is definitely talking about sanctification. It's talking about the rapture, rewards. It's not talking about the final great white throne judgment where the book of life is open. This is in the context of Christians and the family of God. But I'm not perfectly confident. Okay, I still talk to God and say, God, I do believe that I'm doing good for you. I do believe that I'm honoring you. But I know I've got stuff that's keeping me from fully honoring you. And, uh, while I, I, there are moments where I'll finish teaching at CLC, you know, and, and I'll be like, I think the Lord was pleased with that. I think he is. And I don't think that that is overconfidence or arrogance. I think that that's real confidence because I, I love these kids and I want them to know Jesus. When I'm loving my kids, I have confidence. But whenever I reflect upon the pattern of my life, I'm like, yeah, there's some stuff here though, that I think needs to be fixed. <laughs> I need to fix that. So is my confidence perfect? No but it's kind of like a metal that has to be purified and all the dross, all that, that fears we're going to see fear of standing before God and, and disappointing him. That stuff is removed as a process. Okay. It doesn't happen completely. I don't think I'm going to stand uh, before God at the end of my life, like right before the rapture happens, right before I die, whichever happens first. I don't think I'm going to be able to say I am 100% confident because that would imply that I have reached a state of sinless perfection, and I haven't. But John's example here is basically saying that as we develop our faith, we become more confident. So again, number two is love does not stop at receiving a gift. And we're going to look at one more point, and then the other points uh, we'll finish next week, okay? It's kind of breaking up this lesson in half, because there's so much here to digest, guys. I love doing verse-by-verse study. I was talking about this uh, on Friday night, I think that I, I like topics, but if a topic isn't super, super narrow, and if it's not something established by the plain sense of scripture, if it's speculative, I feel a little bit more squirmy about teaching. You know, I like talking about, as we did on Friday, you know, uh, Friday, the, the canopy and, and uh, the, the idea of the three heavens and, and all that. I enjoy talking about stuff like that, but I don't have the same level of confidence that I do when I'm just sticking to the letter of scripture. Uh, but that's why I love digging deep into it. But let's look at verse 18 and we'll wrap it up with this. I'm already starting to pronounce my words wrongly and I'm getting some giggles from the audience. I said fry, I said fry, like as in Friday. Never mind. Didn't even notice. Y'all were talking about the throne issue. 
Okay. Anyways, so let's look at number number three point three is love chastens the conscience. Love chastens the conscience to bring about growth. So chastening is discipline. There's synonyms. And in verse 18, it says there is no love or sorry, no fear in love. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear because fear hath torment. Torment, by the way, is a very strong term. And when we read the word torment, a lot of times people automatically will jump to eternal torment, hell here. But that's not what it's talking about. The word means punishment. And often in the Greek outside the Bible, this particular verb, or not verb, sorry, this particular term had the meaning of uh, remedial. So to punish, to bring about a change. It doesn't get used that way all the time, but often in the Greek outside the Bible, this term has that connotation, a punishment that's meant to correct, that's meant to change behavior. And so fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. And that's simply saying that when we are outside the will of God, specifically in context, when we're not loving God by loving the brethren, there is a fear about standing before God because we know, even if we cover it up, even if we distract ourselves, if we delude ourselves, we know when the Holy Spirit speaks to us and tells us, you're not treating the brethren properly. You're not loving as you should. And whenever we have that Holy Spirit uh, conviction, we know that oh, the Lord would not be pleased with this. And if we stood before God, having made this a pattern of behavior, God's going to be disappointed. A rebuke would be in order. And that causes fear, but that fear actually has a positive benefit. Now, of course, fear is in general, okay, a bad thing. The world was originally designed to be very good and fear was not a part of it. But now that fear is part of the world because sin is part of the world and God's a just judge, because we're in the family of God, we don't relate to him that way, but we still fear our father's disciplining hand. And so fear, even though it's not a good thing, if our love was perfect and we were honoring God completely, then we wouldn't have fear. And of course, that's the goal, right? But in the meantime, when we do have fear, how do we respond? It's the same question. How do you respond to God's discipline? Well, you listen to his voice when that voice of authority speaks and says, look, you're not loving the brethren. Look, you're not loving the lost. You're withholding that love, which in John's language, it's love and hate. That's a very Jewish way of looking at things. Very dualistic. You are either loving or you are hating. And so if you're withholding the love, then you are in the Jewish mindset hating. So it's a hyperbolic way of looking at things. But Jesus often uses this in his teachings. Uh, that's the sense of hate, not in some wrathful pouring out punishment on somebody. It's not always used that way. When it talks about Jacob, I loved and Esau, I hated. Well, Esau, he, he had withheld from him a blessing. And in contrast, Jacob received that. So Jacob was loved. Esau was hated. Again, that's a very Jewish way of looking at things. But uh, John, in, in speaking the same way, he's saying that if you're withholding love or therefore hating the brethren and, and withholding, what would that mean? Um, earlier in the book, John says, if you see a brother who's in need, has need of worldly goods, needs food, needs clothes, if you withhold that, that would be classified by him as hating the brethren. And so if you're not giving them what they need, if you just say, God bless you, I will pray for you but I'm not going to give you what you need right now. That would be hating the brethren. He's saying, if we have that kind of hate in our hearts, we're going to have fear because the Holy spirit who's in us will convict us. 
in a way that he doesn't interact with the lost. Now, the lost are convicted, but in a different way. I always call it, uh, this is a term that I've used for years to describe the Holy Spirit at work in a Christian, the hypersensitivity to the Holy Spirit. We are more sensitive to the Holy Spirit because he indwells us. The world's not going to be as sensitive as we are to these things because the Holy Spirit doesn't know God. We do. And so the more we get close to God, that's what I meant. Yes, the world doesn't know God. But if the world doesn't know God, they're not going to be as sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit um, as we are. And so that hypersensitivity means that as we fear, we confess and we repent, and then we develop confidence, knowing that we're pleasing the Lord in this world. We are imitating him. He is love. So we're being loving. So when we come before him one day and we stand before his throne, then we'll be confident that he will commend us and we will be rewarded rather than being um, reprimanded. Um, I think that in a sense, well, not in a sense, and you know, absolutely, when we stand before God, there will be nobody who stands before God that doesn't already know that while wow, we messed up. I mean, because we're going to be in glorified bodies, y'all. I mean, we're not going to have the flesh anymore. So when we come before God, there will never be any question of, well, does God have a right to say this? Is he right in reprimanding me? Is he right in disciplining me? Well, nobody's going to argue as we often do in this world, right? I mean, we, we talk back to our parents. We're not going to talk back to our heavenly father because we already know. And he knows that we already know. But the fact of the matter is we did know better because of the Holy Spirit in this life. And even though we were distracted by the flesh and we were distracted by the deception of the enemy, we had the truth. Okay. We had a source of truth. Uh, we were made accountable by the counsel of the Holy Spirit everywhere we go. And we didn't act upon that. And that will be reviewed at the judgment seat of Christ. However, again, this is chastening, disciplining language. This is not justification language. And so I'm going to read here to summarize this point and then we'll wrap it up. But again, number three, point three, love chases the conscience to bring about growth. When we doubt or fear, in the evangelical world, we generally do so in the context of salvation. Most people will not go beyond that. They, they get stuck in, am I saved? Am I saved? Am I saved? Because the gospel's been muddied. But John's readers knew better because they heard the gospel unmuddied. So if you were to go back in John's day, no one had any confusion when it came to salvation, when the apostles taught them. All the confusion came from everybody else the heretics, the Judaizers, the Gnostics. But when Paul taught, it was justification by grace alone, through faith alone. You're eternally secure. Now that you've been shown grace, honor the Lord in your life. And they got it and they were illuminated and they were happy. They were filled with gratitude. And that's the way it was meant to be. But unfortunately, we've gotten so past that with lordship salvation and conditional security, losing your salvation, or as far as works-based salvation as you see in cults, okay? There are a lot of people who claim to be evangelical. That is, they believe that Jesus is God and they will accept the virgin birth, the inerrancy of scripture. But when they talk about salvation, their view of salvation is no different than a cult like Mormonism or Jehovah's Witnesses. So when the muddied waters are constantly surrounding us in the evangelical world, we fear in terms of salvation. Like, am I really saved? But that's not what John's talking about here. So these people... The audience, they would have understood that any doubt or fear we ought to have pertains to our service as already saved people. So we no doubt frustrate God's purposes when we linger in salvation land. Don't linger in salvation land when it comes to, you know, fearing, worry, anxiety, 
Okay, leave that behind because that's the way we were intended to live our lives, leaving behind the anxiety of whether or not we're saved. That's a question that should have been answered the moment we heard the gospel and we believed. Okay, and if you still have doubts, the devil, of course, he goes for our head. He wants us to think wrongly. That's why we got to put on the helmet of salvation, right? And the helmet of salvation is the clear gospel. And so if you ever wonder, am I saved? Well, did I believe in Jesus? Yes, I did. I do believe in Jesus. Then it's over. It's settled. And any fear that we have deals with our relationship to God as father. And that's been so freeing, guys. It's been so liberating knowing that, you know, from the days I was in seminary where it was always like I couldn't really treat God as father. I couldn't think of him as father because God was the king and the king was going to smite me. If I didn't have enough fruit in my life, I didn't have enough work in my life, but knowing now that, no, he is my father. Does that take away all fear? No, I still have fear because I know I'm going to stand before him one day, but I know that that fear is the proper fear that I have as a child and not the improper fear of a Christian failing to understand their position in Christ. I know who I am now. And so when I fear the kind of fear I have is the appropriate fear. There's something in my life that needs to be removed so I can be confident and stand before God one day, knowing that I'm being faithful in what he's called me to do. So it's not humility, but legalism that keeps us in salvation land. Okay. Or denying that you have received salvation, doubting that, wondering about that. Okay. That is not humility. People will think it's humility. In fact, a lot of people think, oh, it's presumptuous. It's very presumptuous to think that you'll be saved one day. No, it's not. It's not presumptuous to say, I believe what God promised me. He wants me to believe it. He tells me to. He commands me to. He's commanded the whole world to repent and to know the gospel and to believe it. And so if you have believed that, then you have confidence. That's not presumptuous. That's exactly what God wants you to do. But legalism, ironically, is what keeps us in a place where we doubt our salvation because we keep wondering have I done enough? And if you're saying, have I done enough? Salvation is basically in your hands. It revolves around you and not around the gift that God provides, the work that he's done, you know, salvation, which he has accomplished. So it becomes very arrogant actually to put any of salvation in your hands. Of course, it is a gift that has to be received through faith. But if we're talking about work, things to be done, if we're putting anything to be done, Okay. Getting baptized, going to church, sharing the gospel. Okay. Abstaining from certain sinful habits. If that's how you determine whether or not you are saved, then that's legalism. The Bible has a lot to say against that. So, uh, we'll stop there, uh, with the third point and we will pick up next week. So please join us for that. If you're listening, God bless you. And we hope that you have a wonderful day.